you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Acts chapter 21 this morning. Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 of Acts chapter 21. Acts is in the New Testament, of course. Fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 21, 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning of Acts 21. And when we had parted from them and, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were urged, or there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This morning, I want to talk to you about the will of the Lord be done. On April 14th, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet of Worms. The emperor had forbidden the sale of all the reformers' books and ordered them to be seized. Luther's life was in great danger. Luther's devoted friend and confidant, George Spallatin, had sent word through a special messenger not to come to Worms, lest he suffer the same fate as John Huss. Luther comforted his fearful friend, saying, Though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. Then he sent Spalatin the now famous message, I shall go to Worms, though there were as many devils as tiles on the roofs. 
On April 16th, Luther entered Worms in a Saxton two-wheeled cart, preceded by an imperial herald. Although it was the dinner hour, 2,000 people were present to observe his entrance. On the following day at 4 o'clock, Luther stood before Charles, heir of a long line of Catholic sovereigns, of Maximilian the Romantic, of Ferdinand the Catholic, of Isabel the Orthodox, scion of the House of Habsburg, Lord of Austria, Burgundy, the Low Countries, Spain, and Naples, Holy Roman Emperor ruling over a vaster domain than any save Charlemagne, symbol of the medieval unities, incarnation of a glorious, if vanishing, heritage. Most men of God would have been intimidated. After an exchange between the Archbishop of Trier, Johann Eck, and Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk, overwhelmed by the immensity of what he was doing, requested and received a night of prayer and consideration. That night, Luther prayed, How frail and sensitive is the flesh of men. The devil so powerful and active, through his apostles and the wise of the world, O thou my God, my God, Help me against the reason and wisdom of all the world. Do this, thou must do it, thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with these great lords of the world. Indeed, I too desire to enjoy days of peace and quiet and to be undisturbed. But thine, O Lord, is this cause. And it is righteous and of eternal importance. Stand by me, thou faithful eternal God. I rely on no man. O God, stand by me in the name of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, who shall be my protector and defender, yea, my mighty fortress through the might and strengthening of the Holy Spirit. On April 18th, a larger hall was chosen, but was so crowded that scarcely any save the emperor could sit down and finally came this famous dialogue. X says to Martin, Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the essence of scriptures? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy, holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave to us an inheritance in which now we are forbidden by the Pope and emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors in which they contain? Martin Luther responded, Since then your majesty and your lordship's desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against the conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So were the fruits of the Reformation for the church. And so came upon which Luther would stand sola 
scriptura, by scripture alone, that we should live. This was the greatest moment in the modern history of the world. How could Martin Luther muster up enough courage and stand alone before the world, risking his life in the sake of God's truth? Because Martin Luther knew God's will. I love how R. Kent Hughes puts it. He knew throughout the examination of God's word while Monk in Wittenberg and through his subsequent encounter with God in Bologna and on his knees in Pilate's staircase in Rome that the just shall live by faith. He knew that it was God's will for him to go to Worms and declare the truth to the world regardless of the consequences. Furthermore, Martin Luther did God's will and this is what set him apart from ordinary men. The Apostle Paul, too, was a man who knew and did God's will. In his circumstances, he knew God's will was to go to Jerusalem. He was being led there for quite some time. He wanted to go and minister to the church there. And even though he knew it would bring him into bonds and afflictions, let's be clear, not everyone agrees on how to interpret Acts 21. There are those who look at it as Paul is showing great faith and courage and there are others that believe Paul made a grave mistake. They would say, well, Paul went against the direction of the Spirit. Paul was human. He certainly made mistakes in his life. However, I don't believe this was one of them. Instead, I believe we have a great example in this passage concerning the will of God. Listen, there are some of you this morning. You know what the will of the Lord is. You know what you're supposed to do, but you struggle. You don't know whether you can do it. And what we see here is Paul knows what awaits him. He knows the suffering. He knows the pain that he will go through. And he doesn't just mope towards the date with destiny, but he sprints to meet it. He knew God's plan. He knew that it meant more uh, to him than anything else and he pursues the will of God with total and reckless abandon so with that said let's look at the will of the Lord be done first of all in this passage of scripture I want us to see that we need to remain focused on God's will we need to remain focused on God's will some people may read these first three verses of chapter 21 and really not think much of them after all it seems as if it's only a travel log on where Paul was going Let's look at what's going on here so we can understand what's happening. Most likely a small vessel, small ship, sailing vessel was hired. And this small vessel would stick close to the shoreline. And it makes all these stops on these cities that we just read through. It was not capable of sailing on the open sea. However, what I want us to focus on is this fact that over and over and over again, this ship keeps making these stops. And Paul, at every stop, has an opportunity to turn back. Paul knew danger was ahead. And at each stop, he could have turned back before he boarded the ship at Patera, which would then take them on a 400-mile nonstop journey. Paul remained focused on God's will. He was not going to be detoured from 
where he was heading and from what he was supposed to do. However, not only did Paul have all of these opportunities to turn back, as we look at verses 4 through 6, we see other things. Paul is now entire. It was a major port city, and so the ship comes there and it stops, and it stops for seven days where it delivers its cargo and it receives cargo. So Paul does what any minister or missionary would do. He goes out and he looks for some Christians. He looks for some Christ followers because he wants to find some brothers and sisters that he can be around, that he can hang out with, that he can encourage. And he finds some and look what it says. And having sought out the disciples. So Paul went and found some folks. And you know what is great when you are a part of the family of God? It's great when you can find other Christians who love the Lord. You can spend time with them. It's great to have such a common denominator. You know, we live in a day and age where people are proud of their citizenship. They're proud of the country they are from. I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that per se. However, in reality, as believers, those who are believers, we're not citizens of America or whatever country that we're from. We're citizens of heaven. That's what scripture teaches us. It says very plainly, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. This means that we can go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the whole world. And as long as there is a Christian there, we have a brother or sister in Christ. There was only one issue for Paul. It says that through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And this is where some people say, well, Paul, Paul sinned because he doesn't listen. He goes to Jerusalem anyway. I don't think so, mainly because Paul had clearly been called by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And because Paul had heard these warnings before. Remember, Paul had said in verse 23 of chapter 20 of Acts that the Holy Spirit testifies to him that in every city that imprisonment and affliction await him. Furthermore, Paul does, does not seem to be taking what they said as the Spirit prohibiting him from going to Jerusalem, but more as a warning from these disciples. The Holy Spirit is revealing to them what's going to happen to Paul, and they seem to interpret that as a prohibition to not go. Their love for Paul and their knowledge of what he was going to go through motivated them to beg him, don't go, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now he was there for seven days. And yet when he left, they came with their wives and children. They escort him out of the city. And it says they knelt with him on the beach for prayer. They loved Paul. Now, when I read that, I like to imagine what some of these prayers must have been like. As they kind of kneel down and, and they pray. You know, maybe something like this. Lord, we love Paul. He has done so much work for your kingdom. He has been used mightily in our lives and we believe he should stay here with us. We know we all fall short and we believe right now Paul is not seeing things clearly. And so we ask you to reveal to him that his decision is the wrong one. Right? I mean, we can't act like we've never had prayers like that before. 
We've, we've been a part of those. Maybe even we've offered up some prayers like that before. Like we know what the Lord's will is. So let's encourage that to be done. Nonetheless, Paul remained focused on God's will. Church, we must remain focused on God's will. But look, it doesn't stop there for Paul. We see that Agabus came and prophesied Paul's future, tying himself up with Paul's belt, telling him this is what awaited him. He did not interpret the prophecy. He did not tell Paul where, uh, where he should or should not go, whether he should or should not go to Jerusalem. But his friends sure did. When they heard it, they pleaded with Paul not to go, even Luke, because he is, uh, says we pleaded with Paul. Remember, Luke's writing the book of Acts, and so he says we pleaded with Paul. However, Paul remained focused and he refused to be sidetracked regardless of the cost. Paul remained focused on the will of God. His friends finally respond with this. Let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. You say, well, okay, I get it. We, as, a, as a follower of Christ, I must remain focused on God's will. Maybe, maybe you understand that, but, but here's the problem so often in the church and, and one of the problems I find so often with Christians. They, they ask questions like this. Well, how do I know what God's will is? Ever ask that question? If I have two decisions, how do I know what God's will is? How do I know what if if I'm supposed to, you know, I got two girls, which you probably should never have two girls at the same time wanting to marry you, but if that's the case, how do I know which one I'm supposed to marry? If I um, if if I'm offered a job at three different places. How do I know which job I'm supposed to take? What's God's will? And, and Christians, we, we struggle over that. Oh, what's God's will? Should I do this? Should I not do this? So I want to give you some practical points dealing with God's will. How it is that as a follower of Christ, you know God's will because Paul knew God's will and he was going to do God's will no matter what. How do we do that? How do we live that way? First of all, or point number two in your notes, knowing God's will means total surrender. Knowing God's will means total surrender. There are many times where people talk a big talk when it comes to the will of God. They say things like this, oh, if I knew God's will, I would do it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. And then God calls them to Africa and they refuse to go. Listen, it makes no sense to sit and speculate about the will of God and that if you knew the will of God, you would do it if you're going to refuse obedience to the will of God. God is not up in heaven arranging things for you and then he says, hey, what do you think of these plans? That's not the way it works. If, if you want to know God's will, it means total surrender so that when he says this, that's what you do. He says, this is where I want you to be. That's where you go. It means total surrender because God indeed does love you and God does have a plan for your life. And even though it may not be your plan, it is his plan and it's far better for you than your plan. And so you need to trust in his plan. This is what we see from Paul over and over again. 
He's warned. He knows what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But he lives a life that is in total surrender. Look down at verse 13. A a very moving verse. Paul says, I am ready to not only be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem. Why does he say that? He tells us why he says that. For the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. Paul didn't consider his life precious to himself. He had one goal, that he would finish the course of his ministry that he had received from Jesus Christ. Total surrender is scary. What if God calls you to some jungle in the middle of nowhere? What if you don't like cold weather? What if you've never heard of Washington, Illinois? Listen, it doesn't matter. He knows all. And his purpose is to be glorified through you. And that happens with total surrender. That may mean hard times. It may mean difficult trials. But you can trust him. Even in the midst of pain and suffering, you can trust him in knowing that he is working out his perfect will in your life. You know, I have yet to hear a testimony or read about anyone who ever completely surrendered everything that they were to the Lord who later then regretted it. You want to know God's will? You must be completely surrendered. Thirdly, knowing God's will means knowing Him through His Word. Knowing God's will means knowing Him through His Word. It's difficult to know God's will if you've no desire to read His letter. This is one of the reasons I don't buy into those commentators that say Paul was sinning. Paul had intimate knowledge of the of the Lord. He walked with him and he knew his word. How do we know this? Well, because Paul himself says in Philippians chapter 3 verse verses 9 and 10, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteous from God that de- the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death. Paul wanted to know the Lord. Listen, if we have to know his word, if we want to know him in his will, we have to dive into his word. Tygane and I and my wife have, have been married 21 years. And you know that there are times... I know what she wants without her even telling me. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to do it. But I know what she wants. You know why? Because I know her. We get to the point where she says, "Uh, taste this and tell me if I like it or not. You ever do that? Because I know whether she's going to like it or not. If you want to know God's will, you have to know his word. Because his word reveals who he is. And it gives us this intimate knowledge of him. Guess what? That means that you have to study it. You have to pray. You, you, you know what else that means? It means that you should seek wise counsel from those that perhaps may have a more intimate knowledge of the Lord than you have. 
All too often we make decisions so flippantly, especially when we are young, without seeking the Lord and going to Him in prayer and without asking wise counsel. Knowing God's will means that you know Him through His Word. You have to read it. You have to study it. You have to gain knowledge of who God is because He reveals His will in His Word and He reveals who He is in His Word. And by gaining an intimate knowledge of Him, you can look at situations and know if something is His will or not. And if you can't, then you find some wise counsel from someone that has more intimate knowledge than you have. Don't go making a major decision for your life on a whim or on some emotion or on some gut feeling. We can know God's will means knowing Him through His Word. Fourthly, knowing God's will means rejecting humanism. Knowing God's will means rejecting humanism. Humanism attaches its prime importance on man and their needs and rejects the wisdom of God. So what happens is God reveals his wisdom and we don't like it because it is not what we thought it was going to be. And therefore it gets rejected. However, the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There are times that the Lord calls us to do something that cannot be humanly explained. This is exactly what Paul did. It can't be humanly explained for Paul to go to Jerusalem knowing what awaits him. It can't be humanly explained. Look at verse 11. Agabus prophesies. He takes Paul's belt. He binds his own feet and hands. And he says, Paul, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bound the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It defies human logic for Paul to go, look at that and go, okay, well, I'll go anyway. However, there are times that God's will is that he be glorified through his servants enduring trials and hardships and sufferings and even martyrdom. There are times that in the midst of your pain and suffering, the best thing to do is endure it for the glory of God. Nonsense, the world will say. Nonsense, some Christians will say. Why well, submit to you Isaiah chapter 53? It was the will of the Lord to crush him, speaking of his own son, Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. I submit to you Jesus in the garden, praying to the Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It was the will of the Father for Jesus to go to the cross. Scripture is clear that the will of the Father is seen in the death of His own Son and that God is and can be glorified in the midst of a servant's suffering. Pain has a purpose. It's not so we can be uh, some sort of sick masochist, but so that God be glorified in the midst of our pain. Paul is going to Jerusalem taking a collection 
for the Gentile churches to the Jewish churches or from the Gentile churches to the Jewish churches. Paul desired unity for the church. He envisions Jew and Gentile as one body. He was willing to take the risk to make sure that the offering got to the church. But even more so than that, Paul wanted to see the Jews saved. He made it clear in Romans 9 that he would be accursed if it meant that the Jews would come to Christ. He's willing to sacrifice his life if that's what it takes to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing God's will means we reject humanism and instead we will live a life that follows biblical principle. That means sometimes we go on a mission trip that could be dangerous. That other people say, oh, well, you shouldn't go there because we are following the Great Commission and we know what the Lord has called us to do. That means that sometimes perhaps we give money even lavishly when we can afford to do so because we are kingdom focused and we know that it goes to advance the kingdom of the Lord. That means that we show grace even when others refuse to show grace because we understand that part of the will of God is that we be givers of grace. That means that we operate our church based upon biblical principles, not based upon humanism and what makes people feel good, but we say, what does the Word of God say? And this is what we will follow. Knowing God's will means we reject humanism. Fifthly, knowing God's will means knowing where you are gifted. We see this all through Paul's life. Paul knew what his gifts were. He knew where and how he could be most used to glorify the Lord. We should always ask ourselves, where can I be most effective? Where can I be most effectively effectively used? Where can I most effectively use my gifts for God's kingdom? For example, I know that one of the strongest gifts that I have when I go through spiritual gift assessments and that sort of thing is preaching. So I use my gift whenever I get a chance to proclaim God's word. So if I'm asked to do two things at the same time, I ask where are my gifts going to be best used to have the greatest impact for the kingdom of God? You see, asking this question allows us to discern God's will. Some might say, well, then why would Paul go to Jerusalem knowing what, uh, that he'd be put in jail? And I would say then, uh, how many prison epistles do we have? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All those were written while Paul was in jail in Rome. Imagine your Bible without these epistles. Just rip them out. God knows what he's doing. Paul knew his gifts. He knew that if it led uh, him into prison, his gifts would still be used in prison. And they were. When we know our gifts, we also must know our motives and desires. In other words, we need to ask, why am I using my gift for this particular reason? You see, because sometimes we can use our gifts to seek our own glory instead of God's glory. And that's very easy to do. I'm not going to lie. I like it when someone comes up to me after church and they say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. I like that. When, tells, when someone tells me something I did or says, hey, you helped me or, or even you changed my life by your investment in me. And it's very easy to get wrapped up and, and seek after those compliments and, and to be that, that pastor that says, man, I'm preaching. So somebody comes out and says, well, pastor, that was an awesome sermon. And see how many, you know, pats on the back I can get. 
It's easy to get wrapped up into that. I know some of you are thinking, I don't think you seek very many pats on the back because you preach hard sometimes. That's okay. It's easy to get wrapped up in compliments. Even for a pastor of a smaller church to think, well, you know, if I preach real good, maybe a big church will call me and then I could pastor a big church and then I could maybe get famous and and recognition. You see, motives and desires are important, church. They're important to examine. Am I doing what I'm doing for His glory alone? And what are my desires for using this gift? If you desire fame, then perhaps that's not lining up with God's desires or purpose. Some people, that is what God has for them. Because there are famous people that are believers and they still glorify God. If you desire to be filthy rich, then perhaps that is not lining up with God's desire. Though again, some people are rich and they use their money and their wealth to glorify God. Scripture tells us he gives us the desires of our heart and he does this by fulfilling our desires or by making our desires his desires. Knowing God's will means knowing where you are gifted and then using those gifts for the greatest kingdom impact and while delighting in the Lord, seeking to bring him glory. How are you gifted? How are you going to use those gifts to have a great kingdom impact? Lastly, the last point. I want to share with you is this. Knowing God's will means you do it. Knowing God's will means you do it. So after you've done those, these things, you've totally surrendered. You're in his word and you know him intimately. You reject humanism. You know where you're gifted and you know how best to use those gifts for his kingdom. After you do those things, you just do it. You just do God's will. And you say, well, what do you mean you just do it? What are you, like a Nike commercial up here? What does it mean? Just do it. I mean that you use your judgment and your conscience and your conviction and you just make a decision. You say, well, what do you mean? What I'm saying is this, that you have spent time Knowing God's revealed will, which He has shown to you, which is given to us in Scripture. You have intimately come into a knowledge of who his, He is. You have surrendered your life. He has revealed His will in Scripture. And you make a decision, and you live with the consequences of that decision. You have to determine what is God's will for you. In your life, you can't, you can't blame anyone else for a decision you make. You can't make that decision to, oh, well, it's, it's so-and-so's fault. You make the decision and you deal with the consequences, whether they're good or bad consequences. Listen, I've seen parents counsel their kids not to go on the mission field because they were scared for their kid. I've seen parents counsel their kids not to go into ministry because it wasn't going to pay their child enough to go and be surrendered to full-time ministry. 
I get it. We love our kids. We love our grandkids. And for sure that counsel could be coming from the Lord. It is possible for someone to give some wise counsel that is not selfishly motivated. But the fact is, often that kind of counsel is not coming from the Lord. Often we want God's will conditionally. Meaning this, we want God's will conditionally based on our happiness. We say, well, what's going to make me most happy? You have to make a decision based on God's revealed word. And then you live with the decision that you made. Sometimes the will of the Lord is the route that is painful and stressful and filled with suffering. And there are times people will not understand it. There are times that people will not understand why you're making the decision that you have made. And you have to say, I am doing what I believe God wants me to do. It's just plain and simple. You know, when I came to First Baptist Church, Washington, and I stood in my church down in Marion, Illinois, as a student pastor, and I struggled reading through my resignation, and I looked out on people that I'd spent 18 months with mentoring and helping and trying to do my best to help them see the Lord work in my life. And as I saw them crying and bawling their heads off, it wasn't easy just to say, I believe I'm doing what God wants me to do. Because if I was doing what Josh wanted to do, I would have never been your pastor. I'd have stayed there. But that's not what God's will was. And you say, well, how'd you know? I know exactly how I described to you how you know. So many times Christians get so preoccupied with the will of God that it's, not, that, that it's not revealed to us. They want to find God's will for their lives. Oh, if I only knew God's will. Here's the thing. They want God to make it so easy for them. They want, they want Him to speak in some sort of audible voice. This is my will. Do this. And they want to know exactly what they are supposed to do. But they don't want to follow the will that He has already revealed to them in Scripture. They're too lazy to look at this and read this and, and read what God's will is. This is my will, your sanctification, by the way. They don't want to do that. They just want him to go, take the job in Missouri. Oh, okay, thank you, Lord. That's what they want. Because it's work to be a believer that follows after the Lord and then to know his will. We need to spend our time making sure we are totally surrendered. Knowing God through his word. Rejecting humanism. And using our gifts to advance his kingdom. And glorify him. And everything else falls into place, church. Everything else falls into place. In closing, here's what I want you to understand this morning. You may be saying this morning, well, I think I've made the wrong decision at some point in my life. And that is possible. Anytime we make a decision that is sinful, that's the wrong decision. 
And if that's you, if you say, I think I made the wrong decision at some point in my life, I made a decision based upon sin. I would say confess it to the Lord and ask him to overrule that decision in your life. Did you know that the Lord even uses sinful acts to bring himself glory? And he can do that in your life. Now that doesn't mean we go out sinning. It just means that he can take a sinful act and use it to bring himself glory. Do you think the people that crucified Jesus were sinning? Yeah. Did it bring God glory? Absolutely. He uses our mistakes. And trust me, I make a lot of them. He uses our mistakes if we'll submit to him. Remember the process of knowing God's will. It starts with total surrender. So I ask you this morning, have you totally surrendered to the Lord in your life? Are you willing to go wherever he leads? Wherever he says go, are you willing to just pack up and go? What if he says, I want you to give this amount of money. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to just do whatever he says? Some of us won't even walk across the street and share the gospel with our neighbor. Some of us won't even share the gospel with a coworker. We know the Lord's been telling us to do it for a long time, but we just don't do it. We're not willing to surrender. Will you live a life of total surrender? This morning, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you've not even started the process. You've not even started the process of knowing God's will in your life. And I'd ask you this morning, put your faith in Him. Put your faith in Him. Put your faith in Him today. Start the process. Total surrender. And you will know God's will. Church, maybe this morning you examine your heart, you examine your life, and you're more concerned with doing your will than God's will. You're more concerned with making yourself happy. You have a hard time detaching that humanism factor. And maybe this morning you just need to pray in your pew. Just say, Lord, I I surrender. And I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what it looks like. There may be something in your life that the Lord's been prodding you to do for a very long time. But I'm telling you, if you want to know God's will, then follow what I've outlined here. And you'll know it. And just make a decision. Live with the consequences. However, Lord's spoken to you this morning, I pray that you would respond to him. Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've not even started the process, you can start that process today. Or maybe this morning you'd say, I'm not. I have no desire to, or I've not had a desire to follow the will of the Lord. And maybe, maybe something was revealed in this message that you need to take care of and, and you want somebody to pray with you, I'd pray with you or... You can come up here and pray on your own. You can pray in your pew. It doesn't matter.
But if the Lord's said something to you this morning, I pray that you would respond to him. Let's close with prayer.